This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Also, don't forget about our book, Thinking Critically, from fake news to conspiracy theories using logic to safely navigate the information landscape. If you're interested in exploring how logic can be used to better help you to discern fact from fiction, the information landscape is perilous, but with the help of this book as your guide, you will always be able to find your way towards truth. It's available on Amazon today. Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today, I am joined by Dr. David Robert Grimes, who is a scientist with a keen interest in the public understanding of science. He writes on science and society for outlets including The Guardian, The Irish Times, The BBC, The Spectator, and The Sunday Business Post. He appears frequently on news media to discuss and debate topics as diverse as vaccination to climate change, and gives talks across the world on the importance of evidence in society. He was joint winner of the 2014 Nature Slash Sense About Science Maddox Prize for Standing Up for Science. Further, he's also the author of the book, Good Thinking, or if you're in Europe, The Irrational Ape, which argues that critical thinking can save the world. Anyway, David, thank you so much for joining us today. It is, it is my pleasure, pleasure to be here. And I was just laughing when you said that because I get asked a lot of the time, why two different titles for the same book? And I have to remind people that 43% of America don't currently believe in evolution. So it's a hard sell to put the word ape in the title of anything. Um, that's just, I just laughed when you said that because I was asked that recently and that was the only answer I could give them. That's too funny. Yeah, I was also curious as to why there were separate titles. Maybe I was thinking somewhere along the lines of you wrote one book first and then you kind of expanded upon it. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's, uh, I'm glad that you actually elucidated that fact for me because I was curious myself. <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of a grim reality when like that, the kind of the marketing team go, yeah, we're going to have to change the title because most people here don't see apes as humans. And I'm like, well, not most obviously, but it's still <laughs> a significant portion. And uh, that's something that had not dawned on me before. So that was, uh, I guess that's a, that, that's a good telling reminder of why we need more critical thinking. The fact that creationism still has such a big role in certain parts of the world, including the United States, but I'm sure we'll get into all that as I talk the ear off you for the next hour or so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We definitely will. Uh, yeah, so I would like to start with kind of the genesis or your origin stories of how you became interested in science. That's a really good question because um, well, I, I think that I originally was, I was more into music and, and acting and then that I still am quite into those things. Um, and then for a while I considered law I can just imagine that would have been, I would have been a terrible lawyer, but this is what I considered. Um, what attracted me to science, though, was this kind of underlying current that the world can be analyzed, that the world can be, you know, that it's not just a case of shouting your opinions down at something and, and someone else's opinions being equally valid and all that kind of stuff. It's more a case that we can critically interrogate the world around us to arrive at, at better decisions, to, to live a happier life. And when I started digging into to that, I came from a philosophical kind of point of view into it. 
it just fascinated me that we have this tool, this, this incredible system for thinking uh, that has been refined over the centuries and continues to be refined. And I guess I got really excited by that and somehow um, abandoned my aspirations of, of musical stardom because I was just too interested in this tangible real thing that we could do to improve the world around us. That's interesting that you say that. Uh, I had a similar journey through science. And actually, I think a lot of the scientists that I talk to are kind of in the same camp where just absolutely fascinated by this process of understanding and being able that we actually have this framework where we can decipher fact from fiction and learn deeper insights about how to how the universe or the world works around us. Yeah, and it, it, it's, it's actually intoxicating. It, it's there's a beauty in it. And, and I think sometimes when you're dealing with people that, that uh, maybe don't have the opportunity to, to delve into science as much, that they sometimes think sometimes it's kind of a cynical exercise. It's unweaving the rainbow. It's taking apart the beauty of the world. And I'm, I'm very much on the other side of that where I'm like, actually, it, all it does is compound the beauty of the world and, and, and the universe around us. It is so much more than we can even fathom. And you don't need to make up anything to, to, to do it. It's you know, the world is so much weirder than you could possibly even imagine. And that's, there's something liberating about that. And there's something freeing about it as well. And I just think that I'd be incredibly privileged to, to be able to, to, to make some inroads in this. And I'm very keen to share that because I think everyone should have that opportunity in an ideal world. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that statement that you just said right there about the world being far stranger than we could possibly imagine, it made me think about, and I know that you can relate to this as somebody who has a physics background, it made me think about quantum mechanics. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And who was, was it Paul? It wasn't Paulie who said it. It was like someone, yeah, it might've been Paulie. I can't remember, but you're absolutely right that the world is, um, and there's the other, the other famous one from quantum mechanics is the problem with your theory is that it isn't crazy enough. Um, and that, that is true. I mean, but that's understandable too. We, we live in a very human sphere, obviously, and we are used to the macroscopic world, the things we can see, um, the, the small portion, the tiny sliver of the universe that our eyes and ears and, and brain can comprehend. And there's so much more than that. And the only tool we have to, to really unpick what's going on is the method of scientific inquiry. I mean, on a deeper level, it's not just for science though, because sometimes there's a thing where people go, well, that's all well and good, but I'm not interested in science. But that method, that, uh, that Socratic kind of method of asking questions and answering them and investigating hypotheses and digging into it, that to me matters whether you're doing science or whether you're doing art or whether you're just trying to work out what the best insurance is for you to buy for your car. Um, we often put these in exclusive domains. This is science. This is art. This is literature. And my, my argument is, is no, it's everything. And, and all of these things complement each other if framed in the right way. That's a bit of a rant. Sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll go back on topic. <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. Yeah, definitely. And that, you know, we'll get more into the critical thing, thinking aspect in a little bit. But yeah, the, the way that the scientific mindset kind of can bleed over into all areas of life and have these positive spillover effects. But uh, real quick, before we kind of move on to the next thing, I just really want to, I'm just curious as to why you chose physics. So, you know, going back to the quantum mechanics, um, the physics, why did you feel like, so obviously you have a number of interests, you know, you were talking about law, then you, you had music, I'm sure there were other, other areas of science that you're interested in. I know that you published in other do domains outside of physics, but why did you choose physics as kind of like your primary 
uh, the primary subject of study, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, now I have to go and interrogate my own psychology a bit. That's always worrying. <laughs> These days, I mainly publish in medical science, and I have yeah. been working in medical science for the last 10 years, chiefly oncology, but also screening and vaccination policy and things like that. And I think what brought me into physics was it was, if you want to boil it down, it was the most basic tool for prodding the world. Uh, physics is very much causality cause and effect, very straightforward, or not very straightforward, but you have systems that are generally reducible that you can work out a, a general principle and then extrapolate from that um, something that you maybe didn't necessarily expect. I also really love mathematics. I was very keen into that. Even, even back in my doing music kind of days, and I still play a lot of music, I was very much keen in, in mathematical patterns and, and delving into them. And physics for me felt like the practical application of mathematics a lot of the time. And I guess now that I do a lot of modeling, um, that's probably, uh, in, in, but physics was, was, for me, it was the most direct science at the time. And my, my interest broadened as I went through it later on. I started getting more into the, the, the other things and, that I'm now into. But I still have a, a great love for physics because if you want to start off in science, and a lot of things people are often put off, and I'm a little bit lazy too. If you do biology, you got to learn all these terms and you got you to go and in chemistry, you got to know all your reactions and go through it. Physics is essentially two or three essential principles and they're all conservation laws. And you suddenly realize that they have symmetries and they echo and they come up. And these principles are applicable to, to every domain you can think of. And for me, that was like getting the skeleton key to the rest of science. I'm like, oh, this is this is useful. Mm -hmm. Now, there is an arrogance of physicists at times, and I've certainly been guilty <laughs> of it. I had to unlearn. So like, um, there's an XKCD comic, you're probably familiar with that, but it has a great touch about there's nothing more arrogant than a physicist discovering a new domain for the first time and saying, why does, you know, why can't we boil it down to this? When I moved into cancer research about 10 years ago, I had that draw by fire where I had to learn an awful lot of biology and realize that people working in different branches of science had amazing insights. They were just different than how I would approach things. And there's a bit of intellectual humility that I had to, you know, I was young and young and young and full of beans, but I had to go and, and learn a little bit of, wow, these people aren't just, you know, physicists sometimes go, well, everyone should do it our way. And then you realize that real biological problems or real, you know, applied problems you can't just boil them down to one variable and then fiddle everything around. You can't take a human and just go, I'm going to hold all variables steady and poke around this one thing. So th these are, but still having physics as, um, as a, as a base bone, I will still ask questions of people. I'll still go, okay, explain this to me. Like I'm stupid. Like I'm a physicist, which I, I the most reductive of all the, 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 the heart, the physical sciences and um, help me understand the mechanism. And sometimes that's a really good way of approaching things. So I guess that's where I came into physics and why I still retain a bit of it, even if I've moved into different domains these days. That's fascinating. And I can say I had a similar journey when trying to decide on a science. And I was just, I guess, really drawn to physics because of the fundamental aspect of it, that you could boil things down to a simple, beautiful equation and that everything was built from that. And I think it's funny that what you mentioned when you moved into uh, the cancer research and then how these biologists approach problems differently than you would as a physicist. And it can't help, I can't help but think about um, like complex systems or that you have these emergent phenomena and you have to like define a new baseline from where you start from. Like you can't boil it down further because you have all these interwoven parts and you really can't, you, the sort of phenomena that you're observing 
isn't there if you break the parts down further beyond a certain point. Do you want does that make sense at all? Oh, absolutely. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. in a physical system, we can go, we'll just make it a cube in a box or, or yeah. a sphere and something. Yeah. And and because of the interplay of of of, of biology and and, and 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 biochemistry, if you take away certain parts or try to strip it down, it, it ceases to work and you lose all insight into it. And this is why actually I would argue that um it, it, for me, another trial by fire was learning. Well, I had some statistics from physics and I was good at the maths of it, but to actually learn that if you're trying to uncouple complicated effects, uh, you can't always be purely deterministic and go, if I do this, because if you have lots of different, say, mice you're doing experiments in, they have their own range of physiological reactions. And, you know, in a physicist, if you do your pendulum experiment and you keep plotting it, it's going to be the exact equation that we all deterministically know. Realizing that most uh, most sciences don't work that way because their systems are inherently more complicated than uh, than what we can boil them down to, is was a really you know important insight, and it made me realize the appreciate uh, the the importance of statistical methods for untangling causal phenomena and things like that. Um, and it really made me delve into philosophy of science in a big way because actually, when you want to ask a fundamental question, you know what causes that or is there an association or causation um it's a deeper question in physics we can sometimes directly do it and say well i banged the stick with the rock and the thing happened that's fair when we're sometimes observing phenomena and we're we're, we're uncovering them you know whether a tumor grows a certain way under a certain um series of of determinants it's going to be scattered and spread and and, and, and unclear so we really have to have a different torch to illuminate that kind of darkness and for me, that, that was it's just wonderful to, to realize that everyone has a role in these kind of applied problems. It's not just physicists walking and going, we'll solve this. No, that won't work. Everyone's working together. And that's, sorry, I'm going on a, on a tangent now, but I, I think that's wonderful. No, absolutely. And I mean, you highlight a great, uh, a great facet of science, which is the, the community effort. You know, it's not just one brilliant biologist, one brilliant chemist, or one brilliant physicist, usually. I mean, uh, even even Albert Einstein didn't develop the special theory of relativity by himself. Uh, maybe maybe general relativity. Uh, most of uh, that can be... Even then he had help with yeah. general relativity. Yeah. Even then he had help. But yeah, but it's a community effort, right? I mean, everyone has their strengths and their weaknesses, and it's really the team coming together from all different aspects of the scientific community and just probing uh, probing the world around us for deeper insights. Yeah, and, and so another one of my interests is meta-research. Um, I, I like working out why so much research is bad or is, is not reliable. And that's not because I'm sitting there nitpicking. It's because I want us to live in a world where we have the best available evidence. And that requires improving the quality of what we put into the scientific canon. And one of the things about that is when you start delving into it, you find out why, um, you know, we have this still this model and we do the Nobel prize is a great example. This great man slash great woman model of science where someone comes in a Newton or an Einstein or, or Marie Curie and they, they shine the light and suddenly bang. And that does happen to an extent, but the vast majority of scientific endeavor is we're all building a house together, right? Yeah. We're putting blocks in or we're working at that blocks in the wrong place, but this block over there. Um, what we still tend to do. And I really wish we didn't, is that we still tend to give all the glory to the person that put the last block on the house and go, look, they built the house. And you're like, those foundations, to, to paraphrase Newton, you were standing on the shoulders of giants already. You couldn't get to that final insight unless you had all that. And we do that in scientific publishing. We reward people for a big discovery without going, well, actually, there was tons of other discoveries that had to be made 
to lead there. So science, I think we should even be more appreciative that it's a collaborative process and maybe a little bit less glory hunting. And I say that when scientists unfortunately exist in a place where they have to have to publish or perish uh, to, to survive, which I think, by the way, is incredibly unhealthy for science. And I do, don't drag me down that way. I'll, you'll get a whole rant on that. So. <laughs> well, I definitely agree with you about the publisher Paris aspect of science right now. And the, you know, at the end of the day too, I guess we have to admit, you know, the glory hunting, you know, scientists are also people, they're humans, they're, they're prone to biases and error and wanting attention uh, that some people want, um, you know, in different aspects of society. But that's just a part of any, of being human, of any aspect of human society. Science is not a perfect endeavor, but we come together as a community and slowly over time, we build this house, which is our human or this tree of knowledge. So in learning deeper insights about the world around us. But anyway, I, uh, so I'm, you know, talking about science here, I'm really curious to hear about how you got into science communication. Uh, so that is a really important aspect of science. I think that we can all agree about, but I'm curious to know about how you got into science communication. Uh, is accidentally a good answer? Well, I'll try <laughs> it. Um, so again, science communication is a broad church and it means different things to different people. I'm not exactly sure what I do, but I guess because I came from a theatrical background and I'm, I'm, I'm I adore English literature and communication. I think it's an incredibly important skill set that is, and, and I was one I was lucky to develop because I had the right people in my life and I had the right opportunities. Um, I, I think a lot of people um, listening to this will have been at a scientific conference and will have realized that sometimes you can have a great scientist who is absolutely dreadful at communicating their ideas or the context for those ideas or, or whatever else. Um, we've all had that experience. You go, oh, I love this person's paper. Oh, good Lord. No, you shouldn't speak. <laughs> You're bad at this. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's understandable because they're different skills. I guess how I got into it is, and this is, again, my motivation is, is, is actually kind of societal a little bit. I would prefer to live in a world where evidence mattered and we, we apportioned our responses based on the strength of evidence. And what got me into this was about over 10 years ago now, um, I remember reading a piece in my, my local newspaper or my national newspaper over here in Ireland, the Irish Times, and it was talking about the discovery of a 13 star sign that had upset the, 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 you know, the whole horoscope thing and the, the zodiac. And I remember reading this going, this is, this is nonsense, right? And it turns out it was nonsense. But I got very frustrated and I was explaining to a friend of mine who works in communications. She had gone off from being an actor with me and had gone into communicating. To, and I went in this big long rant over a few drinks with her. And she's like, okay, you've explained it to me perfectly. And I now understand why don't you just, you know, write that down somewhere? You know, that that's actually interesting, the way you've explained why that's wrong. And I was like, and it and she said, it was funny too. So to do that, I'm like, well, okay. So I started writing stuff down for a very small audience, thinking this is mainly a corrective. And then I guess over the years, um, there were so many places in, in society where people would start talking about very serious things that you could use the tools of science. You could use the mathematical methods from statistics, or you could use critical thinking to analyze, and that wasn't being done. So I started finding a niche for myself where I'd often be asked into things to go, hey, look, we've, we've got this report from these people that say X. Can you give a comment on that? Um, and yeah, that, that, that kind of grew and, and spiraled. And then I started putting myself forward going, look, I'd, I'd, I'd go to newspapers and go, I, 
you wrote this a few weeks ago. I was thinking, or in weeks are no good for newspapers. It was always days. Um, I said, you wrote something and it's interesting, but I think we could do an opinion showing why that's not right or why that might be mistaken. And that's, I guess, how I fell into it. It was more, but the motivation has always been the same. Um, I just want us to live in a world where, where evidence matters. And I think the pandemic has shown that unfortunately we, we, are, we have a long way to go then. And social media itself has not been, I would say, a net positive contributor to that as of yet. And there's, there's a lot of reasons for that, but that's how I fell into it and uh, have remained in it, I guess. <laughs> no, I mean, and I categorically agree, of course, that, you know, about living in a world where evidence matters. And it is unfortunate that we, you know, the, as you said, the pandemic has really highlighted this, that we have clearly a long way to go. And I suppose one of the things I'm most concerned about, though, you know, just making that comment a long way to go is that, you know, with some of the global problems that we're facing, uh, for example, global warming, we don't have a whole lot of time in order to kind of address these, these issues. So when I say we have a long way to go until we're more of an evidence-based society, I'm hoping that that ground can be traversed in a short time frame. <laughs> Yeah, um, and, and you're absolutely right. That that is probably the most pressing threat we have we, we have ahead of us. The climate change. One of my frustrations with that, and and this is the, the the philosophical point I think it pivots around, is that, for example, if you want to say, well, what are our solutions to climate change? There's a very important discussion to be had there. I 100% agree, right? And uh, we should sit there and talk about what level of um, you know curtailment of our of our usual enjoyments do we have to engage in, what should we do, that, that. But the problem is we can't even get to that stage until we have the vast majority of society in an agreement that climate change is a problem and that it's anthropogenic, that we have done it. At the moment, it feels like we're living in a house that's kind of on fire and half of the people in the house are denying there's a fire. Um, and, and of course, like you can't, you can't make informed decisions into you. And, and when people talk about opinion and, 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 ide and ideology comes into this in a huge way, people's psychology and their tribalism is a huge problem. Uh, and even if we don't recognize it, it's, it's actually the pressing one. Because for example, let's say climate change, you are far more likely to reject climate change if you are a hardcore libertarian and stringent belief in the free market. And that is, now that there are libertarian solutions, I say in verticals comes to climate change, but there is a more likely to be a rejection of the extent of the reality of global warming. And the reason that's quite, quite simple. Um, if you are a hardcore libertarian, free market's gonna solve everything. Suddenly your model falls apart when you're faced with something like climate change because it's ideologically equivalent to trespass. And um, if someone is, someone's fires down the road are, are going to poison you and poison your environment, you can no longer say, carte blanche, do what you want. And you start having to change the boundaries of your philosophy to adapt to that. That is cognitively expensive uh, to change your mind and to go, oh, maybe my philosophy needs some refinement. It is much easier to deny there's a problem than to refine your ideas. And by the way, that goes, I mean, people, I'm not taking pot shots at the right, at the, you know, I, 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 you could do it with the left as well in several issues. Um, and in different countries, the, the, the right left spectrum changes massively. So I know we're very America centric, but obviously in France, it would be a different picture or Belgium or whatever else. Um, I think the really important thing is that we have tribalisms that make it very hard for us to change our mind or to, um, you know, compromise on, on, on the important things. So I'm, 
I'd love us to get to a place where we could start really discussing solutions toward climate change or actions that we have to take. But we still have a huge amount of work to do to even get people over that ideological threshold to accept that there's a problem in the first instance. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a real shame how human psychology seems to get in the way <laughs> of progress sometimes uh, and how an individual's belief system or ideology uh, can prevent them from actually seeing, uh, seeing truth because they don't want to, as you said, it's a cognitive burden. They, want to, you know, they don't want to entertain it. Um, they undergo the cognitive dissonance, the discomfort that comes when having your beliefs challenged and they'd rather just deny it and push those, push those facts to the side and then move on with their life and say, well, you know, it's far easier to go down this current route and stay the current, uh, the current path versus, you know, assimilating these new, these new facts and then and updating my worldview and changing kind of how I, I, uh, I move through my life. And yeah, it's just, it's just really sad to see that. And I fear that this is going to get in our way to a point where it's severely detrimental to society uh, when we need to make serious changes and we're not doing it. So but I, I think what's also exacerbated that, and this is where I had to change my, my method of communicating it many years ago. And I write about this in Good Thinking um, about what do you want to achieve with your communication? And sometimes we communicate to get the kudos from our tribe. We do. If I yeah. am, if I smack down an anti-vaxxer on social media, I'll get like all my friends liking that and saying, ha, that was badass. Have I changed any minds in the process? No. So about eight or nine years ago, I started getting really concerned. Because I, 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 I do engage, for example, with vaccine stuff, I engage with vaccine hesitant parents all the time. You don't get huge. Uh, you do, it's in private. It's, and I deliberately do that. Because firstly, we, we still have this hang up that debate is the arbiter of truth. No, debate will always award the best orator, the best, uh, the, be the, I mean, uh, the best person at bending the facts is going to win the debate. What actually matters is discussion. You never change anyone else's mind. You simply give them the tools and freedom to change their own mind. And if you put them on the spot in social media, um, you will just send them deeper and deeper into their tribe. And we already have massive problems of polarization. We've seen that in the past eight years in particular that social media has made us more polarized and less willing to listen to each other. That's a problem because I need the climate change denying people and the vaccine denying people to slowly be pushed down that spectrum towards acceptance. If my strategies for communicating push them further towards denial, um, I can tell myself that I'm being morally superior, but actually I'm just contributing to polarization. So what I try to do, and I, you have to pick your battles too, because it can be a waste of time sometimes, I find it much more useful if I'm sitting face to face with someone or, you know, online chatting with someone who has concerns and has fears and to go, why, what would help you change your mind? Okay, well, what do we disagree on and where, where do you stand? And sometimes you find that they're frustrated or they don't, um, there's lots of other things that are there maybe pushing them towards a position that aren't necessarily the science. Um, and, and that's important. The human aspect is important to recognize. I just worry that social media has actually made that harder to do because it's created um, echo chambers that are very substantial. And we get that little dopamine rush when we go and think that our tribe is high-fiving us and telling us that we're all great. I'm not sure that's conducive to, to improving society. And I definitely started feeling that a good few years ago. I'm, I'm even very careful these days not to get in stupid put-down rows with people that are obviously very ideologically opposed to me. 
because firstly it's pun it's punching down a little bit and secondly like i don't want to preach to the choir the choir are already on my side yeah. i prefer yeah. to put my efforts into talking to people in the middle who don't know what to believe and would like some advice you know yeah absolutely and i uh, i'm glad that you brought that up about how you know, social media puts us in these echo chambers and that if you put somebody on blast, like there's no way that you're going to change any minds. And, you know, cause I've seen that a lot with sci science communicators and like science pages when they interact with disparaging comments. And, you know, sometimes the comments can be very condescending and just, you know, rude, you know, going on some sort of um, harangue about whatever it is, you know, you're, you don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, when you're an expert in the field, but, when you respond in a negative connotation or tone, it, it doesn't ever change any mind. And while you may never actually change that particular person's mind, like I'm, you know, I'm talking about social media in general here, you know, there are people, there are fence sitters, there are people who don't ever engage, but they read through the comments, and you might actually change their mind because you approached the uh, conversation, dialogue, uh, debate, whatever you want to call it. Uh, with a calm and collected sort of disposition, presenting uh, evidence to refute points and kind of elucidate why it is that this individual's position is counter to what the scientific community believes. You are absolutely correct. And I, 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 I liken to this, if you imagine this is a football field and 15% of people are right down, they're always in your goalpost, they're on your side, they're going to agree with your position no matter what. 15% of people the ones that make the most noise might be anti-vaccine or, or deny climate change, and they probably aren't going to shift their position much. 70% of people are milling around in the middle, you know, open to either view, not really knowing what to believe. And they're watching. They're not commenting. They're not uh, getting involved in these Twitter spats or these Instagram wars, but they are watching. Yeah. And whenever I write something now, I, that's who I'm writing for. I couldn't care. No, no offense to people who are in the science. I couldn't care less what they think because <laughs> they they have the tools and the ability and the privilege to to have got to where they've gotten and and, and be able to interrogate that data. Uh, a lot of people haven't been that lucky or or you know have gone in different directions and and would really appreciate it. So I think you're right. I I, I often when I reply to say and I'm very selective about who I reply to. I I try not to feed trolls too much because sometimes they love it. But someone who says something that's I think that can be a learning opportunity. I'll reply to knowing that this person is going to be blocked in a few minutes when they get abusive, but also knowing that someone who comes in and lurks, and that's the majority of social media users, by the way, are lurkers. They're not engaged. Like they're, they're, they're passively consuming and watching, but they're not necessarily posting frantically. That's small uh, portion that maybe there's something in there that'll give them enough fuel to go, you know what? And again, the freedom to change their own mind and go, yeah, you know what? I think the better argument is being made by 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 David here. Then you know, um, vaccines kill you one oh seven, and I, that's what I want to do. I want to convert the middle ground and give them enough reason to come over to the science based side. I couldn't care less about trying to convert the hardcore. It's a waste of my time, and I couldn't care less about just concentrating and smacking down. So yeah, I mean, you have a limited amount of effort you can put into things in life. That's what I prefer to use my time to do. It's even in the book. Um, I'm not sure if you had a chance to read it, but I, I, I do try very hard in it. Now, I can be sarcastic at times, but I try really hard not to be cruel to people and to yeah. say, look, you know, and I, you can laugh about, but I mean, for example, take the anti-vaccine movement. 
there are there's this vaccine uh, it's not a simple binary of of you being anti-vax or pro-vax it's actually a spectrum and we know that people can be nudged up or down that spectrum by exposure to disinformation or whatever else um i want to nudge them towards acceptance that's what i, I want to do um i'm not going to get achieve that by being cruel so when i write about vaccination in the book i, I sometimes will, will will cite someone like robert f kennedy jr who i know is being mendacious who i know is lying and call him and saying he's lying about this um or or people like that or andrew wakefield who unfortunately i've had the the misfortune of dealing with in person who's atrocious. When I call them out, I am not calling out, you know, Sally and John who live down the road who don't know where to get their kid vaccinated because they've heard all these scary things. I'm not putting them in the same category. And I have to make that in the book really clear that yeah. being scared of vaccination after hearing all this nonsense is totally understandable. Um, but you need to know that someone like Wakefield is, is a liar, is deliberately doing this. Where about someone like hypothetical Sally and John they're just caught in the crossfire they're victims of that disinformation and to treat them like villains which people sometimes do oh I'm a bit scared to get my kid vaccinated well you're anti-vax you're not helping (laughs) because if they're a bit scared they're willing to have a conversation about it and that's when you jump in and go yeah why are you scared that's that's totally understandable talk to me about it maybe I can help yeah drawing that distinction uh between the liars or these uh these disinformation super spreaders, such as the Andrew Wakefield or the, the Robert Kennedy Jr., who are deliberately lying for personal gain, and then uh, discerning that from the consumer of that information who then is concerned about vaccines and may even spread it as misinformation, like they are definitely a victim in this yeah. whole scenario. They're a victim, and to treat them like they are the enemy instead of somebody who has been uh, been victimized by a nefarious actor then yeah that would that's just not doing society any sort of uh, service like you need to definitely treat them like a victim and then approach that approach uh, approach this individual or individuals with compassion and understanding and then have a conversation and and we also have to and this is really hard and this is this goes towards people who are you know in the scientific domain too mm-hmm. and this is really hard for scientists to do as much because we're humans. Again, we, we alluded to this earlier on. There is no shame, zero shame in changing our mind or softening our position as long as we're doing it in the basis of evidence and reflection. If we go, you know what, a few years ago I thought this, the more I've weighed up the evidence, the more I've learned. But we have this thing called identity protective cognition where we sometimes pin our colors to the mast and we feel that any kind of come down is a weakness. Actually, I have so much time and I think we all should have so much time for anyone who goes, yeah, for years I believed this and I had this position and honestly it's evolved because the evidence has gone this way. Um, and in ideal world, that's how scientists should work. Now, as I do spend a lot of time doing meta research, I'm afraid scientists don't work like that, but that is how, that is the standard of, of, of all scientific fields. That is what we should as- aspire to. And that's why I think that you should be very forgiving of people who change their mind and go, look, I was anti-vaccine for years and then, I changed my mind because that, that person should be praised uh, and not denigrated for that. And also, but I think we also need to be very forgiving with ourselves and kind of go, you know, what? I could be wrong about stuff. I'm wrong all the time. 90% of the ideas I've ever had are wrong. Um, and we should be very promiscuous with our ideas and get rid of them. But what we do is we marry them instead. And we get, a, we start wearing those ideas as our own identity. And this is really fascinating. Um, this is the identity protective cognition. That's why if someone insults our idea, that we get very upset. Even your football team or whatever, someone goes, oh, that, that local team, they did very badly. Hey, damn you. 
you have to stop yourself and go, why am I getting emotionally involved in, in this? These are ideas and they should be decontextualized sometimes. And, and um, it's hard to do because we're humans. We emote first and uh, we reason later. We are reactive rather than reflective. But I think we do need to get to a place where we encourage reflection. And again, I, I don't want to blame social media for all our woes. We've had these for years, but it's exacerbated them. I, I often tell people, people, what's your opinion on this? And I go, I don't have an opinion because I haven't read enough. And I know the material that I'm being sent is inflammatory. It's trying to get me to hate something or like someone or whatever else. And I don't think it's a good idea for me to make a decision based on limited evidence. And people often go, but you have to have an opinion. I'm like, no, the default opinion is I don't know enough and neither do you. So maybe we should wait until more evidence emerges. Um, social media encourages instantaneous reactions and on and then it's hard to come down from them. You, you realize you're wrong about something, but it becomes very difficult to, uh, to backtrack. But I think we should be more forgiving of backtracking and maybe less, um, less willing to, to, to jump on a bandwagon or jump in a reaction in the first instance. The general rule of thumb I say with information hygiene is if something makes you want to react instantaneously, it's a trap. It just... <laughs> Put it to one yeah. side and go, I'm going to leave that for a little while, you know? And unfortunately, that's kind of like the media escape these days uh, in general is trying to elicit strong emotions almost immediately because they want to capture your attention. And it's built into all of the algorithms and the social media platforms. Um, and when people use the stronger, stronger emotive words, um, that captures more shares, it captures more likes and it's, this is just compounded in society today. And really we need to be doing exactly the opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in the first chapter of the book, I kind of delve into that a little bit. And I kind of look the most um, reliable predictor of whether something goes viral online or whether it gets a high engagement is if it invokes anger, disgust, or outrage. If it is inherently polarizing. And we become the, the victims of clickbait if we're not careful. Um, and they're, they're, and again, I mean, I've, I used to and look, I'm, I'm a human. I've done this myself. I've had an instantaneous reaction to something and, and maybe tweeted it or put it on Instagram. And um, I try very hard these days not to do that. And particularly if it's inflammatory, because I often know, okay, um, we need a bit of time to cool down and assess this because unfortunately, until we learn to do that, uh, demagogues, charlatans, and those who would willingly inflict harm to us will use that. If I want to um, sp spread a myth or cause damage with a rumor, I'm going to make damn well sure it's so inflammatory and so inciting that people um, have a guttural visceral reaction and ideally anger or disgust, because that will make sure it gets traction. Then you have availability bias because it's there and people go, well, there must be something to it. I love it. There must be a smoke because there's a, you know, there must be a fire because there's smoke. And I'm like, or someone's just dropped off a smoke bomb because that's what a, a lot of posts on social media are. And you'll see it with viral advertising. And like you say, a mode of language, it's, it's designed to, um, you know, tap into our urge to do that. And that's really unfair. And social media companies, you know, you can argue with their responsibilities. I, I have in academically and in the book argued that social media companies need external regulation. Um, I'm not sure how popular that opinion will be, but I, I don't see any way around it, but maybe that's other people have better insights. Um, but we have a certain responsibility too. And it's really hard to train yourself not to react instantaneously, not to have an urgent opinion. 
Um, but it's quite liberating too. Now that I can say when people ask me, what's your opinion on this? I go, I don't know. And I don't care because I don't know enough. And this is mm-hmm. not a subject which I'm an expert on. So therefore, I don't think my opinion's worth anything on this subject. And people, that shocks people. They're like, but you're allowed to have an opinion. I'm like, if, if it's not an informed opinion, what's the point of it? Like, you know, I, I don't have to have an opinion on anything, everything. And that's okay because I prefer yeah. to concentrate my effort on the stuff that I can make some impact on. Yeah, and, be, and beyond that, I mean, ha- having an informed opinion is one thing and then presenting that to, you know, putting that out there in social media or the other person that you're having a discussion with. But then, you know, if you don't feel like you're informed enough, an uninformed opinion could be dangerous. I mean, you could be essentially spreading misinformation unknowingly uh, just because you don't have an informed opinion. Yes, so, absolutely. you know, there, there's tons of great quotes out there, uh, but just because you have an opinion doesn't mean you necessarily that it's correct or that you should be sharing it. Yeah. And I, I know that sounds counterintuitive because we're almost encouraged by society to an extent, like everyone's opinion, you know, you that's, you know, get out there. And I'm like, yeah. But again, we're going back to this libertarian idea of, of and, and Mark Zuckerberg has used this a few times in defense of Facebook's pretty appalling practices. Uh, particularly in light of the fact that we know they could regulate misinformation, but they don't want to lose engagement on it. He has said in the defense of Facebook in September last year that, um, well, you know, it, it, we give everyone all the, all the options and they can, they can choose the worldview that best suits them and they get exposed to new ideas. And it's all wonderful. And on paper, that almost sounds convincing, except that we have psychological biases. If we are overwhelmingly predisposed to fixate on negative news and, and negative assessments of, of, of things, well, actually then it's very easy to game us and we are being gamed. So this idea that information is neutral, information is never neutral. Someone always tells you something for a reason or, or for a, on social media for a purpose. For example, if I told you um, a very famous example is you can, you can give it, and that's, that's the thing called sometimes malinformation where the information is may be true, but taken out of context. I'm sure you've heard of dihydrogen monoxide and the danger it does to the environment. Have you heard this one? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I like the, I like this one, yeah. And I'll just quickly give it for anyone who hasn't heard it. And it basically breaks down the fact that this there is a chemical, dihydrogen monoxide, and it kills hundreds of thousands of people a year. It, uh, it, it's poisonous in high doses, which we, we experience in high doses. It's so uh, damaging, it can corrode metal, it's found in tumors, it's found in acid rain, it's found in nuclear waste, it's in our food supply, and it can cause a serious harm. And then you ask people, should we ban this chemical? And they will go, well, a lot of them will say, absolutely. Yeah. And I would point out that dihydrogen monoxide is H2O, is water. Nothing I've told you about water is wrong. It's all of that stuff is true. But I have emphasized it and decontextualized it to make it look like it's incredibly dangerous. So... Social media does that on, on speed. It, it, it like, you know, if and it's even the case if I see a story, like, you know, a claim made by a drug and you see it the other way as well, ivermectin suddenly it becomes the miracle drug. It's not. But the, the people who are pushing that stuff are framing it a certain way. And ivermectin kills COVID in a Petri dish. I'm like, yeah, everything does. You can sneeze on COVID and kill it in a Petri dish. Petri dishes aren't humans. Um, you see that, by the way, with I do with cancer misinformation. And you'll often see people going, cannabis, uh, THC. Well, that works uh, for cancer because it kills cancer cells in a petri dish. So I'm like, yep, literally, sodas accidentally pouring water on them. Uh, you know, <laughs> we're not. Yeah. And it turns out that 
it's it's much harder to kill cancer cells in a person than it is in a petri dish um and again that's that that's that's the out of de decontextualization of information is really dangerous and unfortunately social media allows itself to do that you know yeah, the, uh, the framing effect is ubiquitous in society today, and it's quite pernicious. I mean, you not only see this in social media, but then you also see this in uh, the major media networks as well. Uh, the CNN, the Fox News, MSNBC, et cetera. All of these major media outlets uh, here, at least in the United States, I don't know about over in the UK or Ireland. Well, it's the same here. It's yeah, the exact yeah, same. yeah. So they, they will frame things in a certain context. It's not necessarily false information. It's true, but it's framed in a certain way. So that way you're walking away from the article uh, with a certain disposition about, the, uh, about whatever the topic it is that was presented. So this has, in my opinion, exacerbated polarization. Um, it, you know, polarization obviously is detrimental to society's social fabric. Um, and I just, I wish that both major media outlets along with social media would step away from this. I obviously, I, I think that I am harder on social media networks than I am about traditional media networks. But, you know, going back uh, real quick to, you know, you were talking about you are a proponent of regulation. I, I couldn't agree more at this point because generally when you allow industry to self-regulate, it never goes well. So yeah, I, yeah. I think. I, I, <laughs> and, and, and then again, like it gets back, and, and particularly in America, and I've had this debate with American friends of mine over there. Um, I'm, I'm over in the States for work an awful lot. And one of the things that comes up a lot is, is it an imposition on say, First Amendment rights or, or the right of free speech if you have regulation. But then I, I point out that rights have to be balanced. If I go around and, um, you know, it's the old classic example of if you run into a crowded theater and start screaming there's a fire and people stampede out and die, do you have any responsibility for that? Should you have been led to in the first instance? Um, there are caveats and controls on, on rights. That's why we have defamation laws, why we have libel laws. We have all sorts of things like that. Um, and I mean, it, it, it's a very tricky thing to regulate and it's a very tricky to, and it's a very important conversation to be had though. And yeah, I, I, I do agree. I'm, I'm definitely harder on social media networks. And, and, and in the book, I have a whole chapter on false balance and the things that mainstream media do very poorly. Um, but one thing I will, I will give to, I guess, what we will call traditional media is that they are to some extent regulated. There are bodies you can go to and complain and there are journalistic bodies for newspapers that if they do something uh, particularly egregious that you can go and say, hey, that's, that's false issue apology now. Um, and they also have some dedication to fact checking. Now you can argue Fox News probably doesn't, but you know your, your CNNs and, and, and your, your, your more less partisan networks most, most definitely will. Um, but it's, it's a funny one because there's no such um, there's no such requirement in the social media sphere. Honestly, it's a very hard one to solve. I have, I have ideas, but um, you know, no set solution. I guess the Facebook whistleblower stuff that we saw last week, um, I don't think that surprised me that literally that engagement matters more. I can tell you during the pandemic, the Center for Countering Digital Hate did a study and they found that the top 12 anti-vaccine accounts on Facebook and Instagram, mainly on Facebook, uh, generated about $37 million revenue between them. Okay, that sounds impressive, like from selling nonsense. Facebook themselves generated $1.1 on the back of those engagements. Now, $1.1 is probably peanuts to Facebook, but it still shows you 
that there is a financial incentive for them not to regulate these highly active communities. And that's what the whistleblower stuff revealed as well, that literally every time they, they countered misinformation, which they could do, they were hit with less engagement because this very active community stopped engaging, therefore ad revenue fell, and they were basically told to put the kibosh on it. That's because they're acting in their self-interest without any external regulation. But they're so big. I mean, companies like Facebook are literally bigger than certain nations at the moment. So I don't know how, I mean, I think the first regulation I suspect will come from Europe. My suspicion is that there will be European-wide regulation on this. Um, and that might be a good thing to observe. I think in the United States, it's a much harder sell because people might view it. And I certainly, I get angry comments when I write about it in journals or newspaper articles, or even in the book, when I even suggest it, people go, oh, who are you to decide what free speech is? And I said, I I'm not. I think you should have a plurality of voices. But what I am saying is someone spreads misinformation, like deliberate lies or even inadvertent lies, we need to have some kind of measure to stop that because that can kill other people. So, you know, fire in a theater problem. Hard to regulate though. No, yeah, it's definitely a very difficult conversation. And as a American myself, I am all for the constitution, all for free speech, you know, first amendment, but this is definitely a conversation that needs to be had um, at this point. How do you ensure through these social media platforms, which have become gigantic, that these disinformation super spreaders that are these individuals who are lying deliberately for personal gain um, are stifled to a degree because their information is literally killing people at this point. So how do you, how do you have that conversation? Um, I don't know exactly. All I know is that the conversation needs to be had. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, I was, I was in the States when Trump was elected in 2016. Uh, I think uh, there's no American alive who, who doesn't have a strange memory of that, unless they're under the age of four or five. Uh, but it was a strange moment because that was almost aided and abetted by social media. And I guess we saw the tail end of Trump's presidency with the with the insurrection attempt in, in, in January of this year. And here are people that had become radicalized by literally nonsense on 4chan. That's obviously exacerbated through different channels, but you know, it was it was terrifying to watch. And I think it must have been particularly scary to watch if you are American. If you go, wow, you have people descending on the center of American democracy because of some nonsense that they got obsessed with online and committing treason, which is a big thing in America, maybe more so than most nations. The American national identity is, is incredibly important. So I think that was, that was so alarming and shows you how polarized we've got that these people were so in an echo chamber, so in a bubble, they were convinced what they were doing was somehow virtuous. Or about, yeah. I think the average American was like, what the actual hell are you doing? You know? <laughs> Yeah, no, it was, uh, I think for a lot of Americans, it was highly alarming. And even more alarming is that it was also incurred, these people were emboldened by the, pre the sitting president of the United States in order to do this. I mean, you could argue that the language he was using was not, was nebulous and it wasn't to encourage the Capitol rioters. But I mean, I think that any genuine person, if you were to honestly look at his words, what he was saying, what he was tweeting about, it was encouraging this type of behavior. Yeah, it was it was a dog whistle. And I mean, yeah. even claiming that the election was stolen. And, and that is 
I think it's so beyond the pale for, for presidential behavior. You didn't have in 2000, uh, when Al Gore uh, lost the election to Bush, you didn't have him going on tweeting, like, you know, the internet was, was nascent or social media was, was only emerging around that time, even later, actually. But like, that would be, it, there's just no precedent for it. And there's been tight elections in the States before. There's been many, and this one was not a tight one, but there has been several. Um, again, I guess 2000, the, the, the Gore-Bush one is a classic example, but it, it's just so weird that that suddenly had become uh, how people, because to buy that conspiracy theory, you have to go down lots of other ones. I suppose the philosopher W.V. Quine talked about our web of belief. And this is what scares me a little bit, that all our beliefs are interconnected. So if you can alter that web so much, you can pull the strands apart that you accept one really outlandish belief like there's a big conspiracy theory to, to deny Trump the presidency, it becomes incredibly easy to accept other ones. Ivermectin is going to cure COVID. COVID's also a hoax. Um, China did it. It's made in the lab. All these things knocking right onto the vaccine's going to kill us all. And, and that really imperils all of us. So I think we've got to keep that web of belief idea. Like when people go to me, are conspiracy theories or misinformation, is it that harmful? I'm like, yeah, it is. It's pathogenic. And I think we really have to start looking at information as every bit as viral as something like COVID. It, if it can infect you and make you infect others with it, it is pathogenic and it is dangerous. No, and all the modeling of misinformation, disinformation and how it spreads online, I mean, it very closely mimics disease spread. So yeah. to talk about it as pathogenic, uh, pathogenic I mean, it is a very suiting adjective. Um, so... Yeah, yeah. But, I, I, I don't know how we fix that overnight, but I yeah. do think that critical thinking is a major, major shield against falling victim to it. To me, critical thinking is the immunization, is the vaccination that you get that prevents you becoming a victim or a vector for misinformation. 100%. And so now that you brought up critical thinking, I guess, what exactly does that mean to you? What is critical thinking? I know you talk about it, you know, I have read your book, at least three quarters of it. Um, and you talk about it quite a bit in the book. It's basically all centered around critical thinking. So I kind of have an idea, but for those who are listening or watching, what exactly does critical thinking mean to you? So there's a lot of different definitions, but they all basically pivot around the same idea. And that is that instead of outright acceptance of, 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 of ideas or claims, that we engage a healthy skepticism and we start interrogating information, even if we want it to be true, that we start asking a series of questions of it, that before we end up um, following a course of action or, or accepting something, that we challenge it a bit, our own beliefs, that, what we're, that which we're exposed to, um, and, and doing it in an analytical, rigorous manner, where you kind of go, okay, so I come across this claim, I give you an example, someone tells you there's a secret hidden cure for cancer and big pharma keeping it a secret. Right. That's common conspiracy theory. 37% of Americans believe that one. So how do you take a critical thinking lens to that? Well, you go, okay, firstly, that's interesting. The two premises. So what's the deal with cancer? And you were, oh, cancer is not one disease. Cancer is like 200 diseases and they're very different. Some of them respond to radiotherapy and some to chemo and some to nothing and some to immunotherapy and they come in different stuff. Okay. So I'm a little bit dubious that you'll have a single magic bullet for this. Okay. We'll put that one. Uh, and then if big pharma had a big cure for cancer, well, if over half the world get cancer and even if they sold it for almost nothing, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't they get all the Nobel prizes? And, all? and when you start, like before you accept that thing, it's very easy to accept these lovely narratives because they're well-packaged. 
Critical thinking demands that you take a few minutes and interrogate that information and ask some basic questions. Then you ask, what's the source of that information? How does it stack up? And the final thing, critical thinking, is only when you have passed all these tests or the, the information has passed all these tests, do you accept it as accurate? Uh, which means that it is a little bit of hard work. It's not intuitive to us. We don't do it naturally. Uh, we're very much heuristic runners. We kind of go, uh, that feels right, or that seems, or you know, intuitive reasoners. We go, that seems legitimate. Um, and critical thinking just asks for that extra step to go, well, just before I accept that, let me just ask a few little questions first. It's a little tiny bit of information hygiene before we vector it to ourselves. Yeah, no, absolutely. And obviously we could use a lot more of that in today's society, particular with, particularly with the information landscape uh, that we were exposed to and the viral spread of misinformation, things of that nature. But uh, real quick, I want to know, because this is a part of the title of your book, and there is a great example, so perhaps we could discuss that as well. How can critical thinking be used to save the world? Because that is a part of the yeah. title. <laughs> it, it is, and people often, when they see the title, go, oh, you, 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 that, that, that's hyperbole, and I'm like, absolutely not. And I'm gonna give you a historical example, and then I'm gonna tell you how we can do it in the future too. So the example I think you're probably alluding to is 1983 out in Moscow. Um, and th there's, a, there's, there's a man whose name uh, probably should be on monuments, but really isn't, Stanislav Petrov. No one really knows that name. A few people do, but very few people do, like would, would think that jumps to their lips. And yet arguably, and I would say truly, that man saved the world. And how did he do that? With critical thinking. So let me explain. 1983, he's sitting there in a bunker in Moscow and running the OKO. He's a deputy, command, uh, deputy chief there. Uh, duty commander, I think, is the title they used. And this is basically Russia's eye on its enemy. These were really, that was the United States. And these are really fraught times. Just a few weeks before Reagan had dismissed the USSR as an evil empire, uh, a civilian passenger plane had been shot down by the Russians that included a US senator. So relations were pretty frosty at this moment. And both sides are pointing massive arsenals of nuclear weapons, not only at each other, but at all the potential allies of these different countries. And the doctrine of mutually assured destruction basically said that if war begins, everyone's going under. All you'd have left is someone vying to rule the ashes, if anyone was even left. Uh, and of course, this was meant to keep it in check, but you know, humans are not rational actors, so this was always a little bit of a question mark. This fateful morning, Petrov looks at the screen. Five American missiles are inbound. The unthinkable has happened. War is beginning. What should have happened was that Petrov would pick up the phone, call the uh, Soviet command and say, we're being attacked. And then they would inevitably have done one thing. They would have retaliated. They would have sent everything they had towards the Americans and all that nuclear war would have ensued. Now we know that that didn't happen because here we are in 2021, relatively healthy, relatively happy. Uh, what happened? Petrov did pick up the phone, but he made a very different decision. He called the operators of OKO and told them it was faulty. Now, as this was happening, he was being screamed at by colleagues saying, we're losing the advantage to the Americans. We're going to be obliterated. You have to do something, you know. No, he was very calm. Why did he do this? Well, because he made a very simple series of calculations, simple to us now, emotionally detached, but probably very difficult to make in the moment, in the heat of it. He said, right, if I launch warheads, if I make this call, war is beginning. 
So first thing I got to do is check if this is really a war. He said, right, if the Americans are going to hit us, they'd have to hit us with everything they've got. Mm, five missiles is a far cry for that. We could shoot them down. What are they playing at? So he calls up the ground command and go, you see any missiles there? And they're like, no, no missiles. Hmm. Weighing it up, he goes, right, it's far more likely that there's a fault in our detector than we're being attacked. And he had to make the executive decision. He did. It turns out he was right. These were reflections from low clouds. That is how close the world came to nuclear war. And that was not the only time. Uh, you think he might have been rewarded for that? No, he was demoted uh, because he was supposed to have made the call that would have launched a war. But I, for one, am incredibly grateful that Petrov decided to use critical thinking. Nor was he the only Russian to do this. Uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, another Russian had the option to launch a nuclear warhead and was put pressure to do so. Um, Vasily Arkhipov, way under the Atlantic Ocean, while Khrushchev and Kennedy are engaging in frantic diplomacy. Um, they were being attacked or, or harangued by a USS carrier, the, the, the Randolph. And they were dropping depth charges and everyone on the ship, which had a 15 kiloton nuclear warhead, was keen to launch it at the Americans. And they had this the autonomy to do so. Only that Vasily Arkhipov, as the flotilla commander, said, no, if we launch that warhead, war has definitely begun. Because there's no hope for it. If we do that without checking, without surfacing high enough to signal back to Moscow and check. We have, we, and he was, they got in a fist fight over this, but he was absolutely right. Had he launched that missile, which was totally understandable, and everyone else on board, including the commander and the political officer wanted to do, the history of the world would be very different. So I think that two unsung Russians, two, two Russians that people don't really know, showed that critical thinking can save the world. Now, we may never have to avert nuclear war. I certainly hope I don't have to, because that sounds like a lot of stress. But there's ways that we can improve our world, whether it's um, making better decisions about climate change or making better health decisions. Small effects of all of us doing this consecutively and together would make this a much more livable place. No, and those those stories are fantastic about how, you know, calm, collected, logical reasoning, critical thinking literally saved the world. And it certainly can again, like you said. Uh, I categorically agree with that statement. And not only, you know, talking about the big picture problems, the global warming, getting through a pandemic, et cetera, but like on an individual level, critical thinking. So, I mean, it's a societal thing. So the more people that understand this, the better decisions that people will make, and that will have a positive impact on that individual's life, which collectively then positively impacts society as a whole. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be decisions, as we discussed earlier, surrounding science, but perhaps financial decisions or career decisions or, you know, selection of a partner in life, <laughs> something like that. You know, just having these skills available to you, it's yeah, it just it, all aspects. Even should I get angry about that bit of gossip I read on, on, on social media or should I not? Like little things, but they accrue a massive effect. If they can make us happier, healthier, that's fantastic. Now, obviously, there's huge challenges we face as a society. We've mentioned climate change, antibiotic resistance, geopolitics, and the reemergence of Cold War kind of stuff. But that requires logical, calm heads. And that requires all of us, not just our politicians and our leaders, because we elect them. It requires all of us to have these skills. And I, I'm optimistic, at least, that we can learn them. It's not intuitive, but it's liberating. People have a lot of work. No, it's so liberating. Imagine making better decisions all the time. I mean, that's that would just be great.
Yeah, absolutely. And where do you think like, okay, so obviously you are, you know, you've written a book about it. You've studied the subject for a number of years now. Where do you think the best place to start learning critical thinking is? So, I mean, there's a, there's a variety of skills that usually are commonplace. So as you said, there's a variety of definitions of what exactly critical thinking is, but there are usually common skills. Uh, for example, uh, logic from philosophy or understanding cognitive biases, uh, cognitive limitations, the uh, blind spots of the mind. Um, so I'm just curious to hear in your opinion for somebody who is interested in going down the critical thinking path because it is a journey. Um, it's not intuitive. It takes, you know, it does take some effort in order to learn the particular um, skills in order to develop the, uh, a more critical mind. But I'm curious to hear from you where exactly would you recommend that somebody start if they're interested in becoming a better critical thinker? So I think humans react to stories. I think that we, and, and that's one of the reasons I put so many stories in the book. I think that we learn our lessons through them, whether it's Aesop's fables or, or, or something else. We, we, we pin to that. You can, you, can, you can approach critical thinking from a very um, academic standpoint, if you wish. And, and I've done that in the past and that's fine but I don't think we remember it that way. So you mentioned some of them in, in the book. I mean, I'm biased. I'm going to say, Hey, you know, if you want to learn about critical thinking, read the book. By the book. Yeah. Yeah. But the way, the way it's been laid out is deliberate. So like you mentioned, the first section is on logic and, and great examples of what happens when we have skewy logic. The second section is on rhetoric. How do we get fooled by stuff? How do we get inflamed by demagogues and, and, and and people like Hitler or Trump, I'm not sure if I should put them in the same sentence, but listen, that will, will, <laughs> probably not fair. But uh, the third one is on, absolutely is on, um, is, on, uh, is on psychology. Like, why do we have all these blind thoughts? How can we identify them? Because it's so important. I think then the fourth part is on numbers because we get fooled by them. If someone gives us a statistic out of context or a number, we get bamboozled by it. Then there's a section on media because let's face it, whether it's social media or traditional media, that's where we get our information from. So when that goes wrong, we're in trouble. And the final section is pretty much, okay, let's put it all together and use the tools of science and critical thinking. How can we put these into our everyday life? Because I, I don't think it's just for scientists. I mean, I, I, to, use, to borrow a, a, a butchered Greek analogy, um, I think scientists should strive to be like Prometheus. You have this fire. This, scientists have to use critical thinking and analytical thought in their job. And I've been very lucky to get some training in it. But if you have that fire, don't just say this is just for science. This is for humanity. Because actually those critical thinking skills are not, and this is what we call scientific thought, actually predate science. They come from ancient philosophers who thought of this a lot. These are tools of reasoning. And every human being is capable of reasoning and, and should be encouraged to do so, whether they're doing science or whether they're doing art. And um, whether you're a policeman or a politician, it, it doesn't matter. So that fire needs to be shared. And I, I hope when I wrote the book that I, 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 I inspire that a little bit with people. But I, I mean, I think critical thinking is a learned skill. I think you always get better at it. And I think start off light by asking certain questions like, okay, if someone, you know, if is this source, for example, I see something online, what's the source? WHO, probably reliable. My racist uncle's Facebook page, maybe less so. Uh, it's and that kind of stuff and these habits they become ingrained and after a while you're actually really good at detecting nonsense and and not falling for it and not sharing it and not being imperiled by it and obviously you know if, if you want to read the book where it kind of lays out absolutely but there's loads of different ways to start 
Yeah, and I, I definitely agree with the, the, the layout that you presented in the book, at least the first couple of chapters. Um, and I think the best place is logic um, to start with. Um, learning how, how do you reason? What is an argument? Like, what is, what is a, what's the structure? Uh, what is a good argument? What is a bad argument? What are logical fallacies? Things of this nature. Um, how exactly, because I mean, you are bombarded with information on a daily basis. And all of this information is putting forward arguments of some variety. Very, very few outlets are just giving you facts um, for you to absorb. It's presented in some sort of narrative, which generally includes arguments. So if you don't know an argument when you're presented with one, then it's very difficult for you then to take that argument, isolate it, and then analyze it for veracity. See, okay, well, you know, is this a reasonable argument or isn't it? based off of the premises. Do the premises support the conclusion? Are there any logical fallacies, et cetera? And I am just completely astounded sometimes by how much, and you know, this has happened a lot in politics, like watching debates and things of that nature, where bad arguments are put forward and they're just kind of absorbed by the audience. And they're not, they're not, they're not refuted in the manner that they should be when somebody is presenting a flawed argument. And it's like, no, you're, you're, the premises are all wrong. You're engaging in this particular type of logical fallacy, et cetera. There's a non sequitur. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just. <laughs> and that requires, it requires a tiny bit of training. But once you learn yeah. to spot them, and that's why I kind of started with them. Once you learn to spot them, you start seeing them everywhere. It's like the biter meinhof phenomenon. Once you, and it's, it's, it's like giving someone x-ray vision to suddenly spot bad arguments. I think you're right. Um, and I, I guess, you, you can do it and then there's ways of approaching it. Like um, if you want to do it from a pure maths point of view, there's ways of doing it that way too. And, and but essentially I, I don't, I don't want to get, I didn't want to get into that. I wanted people to just have this with some good examples of, of skewy logic and learning the basics of it. But I think you have to see the, the, the funny side of it or the entertaining stories from it too, because I mean, I, I talk about it in one bit in one of the chapters, I hope it's not a spoiler for anyone. There was a very famous trial in the ancient church now the, the early church the medieval church made game of thrones look like a children's show right it was just it was bloody and popes were killing popes and all sorts of stuff was happening and you had pope stephen the seventh who had put his predecessor pope formosus on trial for nepotism and cinema and all the fun stuff right and he was thundering accusations out of in front of the the cardinals this guy he's awful and uh, i think this is the year was eight eight nine seven i think um good year good good vintage but he was he was yelling at him and and and, and foremost said absolutely nothing and Stephen turns around and says well look if he was innocent he'd defend himself and he hasn't defended himself so the logical conclusion is he's guilty and the cardinals all voted said jay's guilty in foremost's defense he'd been dead for eight months before he was put on trial so there might have been another reason for his silence. Now, obviously, this was more about politics than piety. Stephen himself yeah. was strangled to death in his cell. My favorite bit of trivia about that, though, is Formosus translates as handsome in Latin. And I'm pretty sure that eight months post-mortem, he probably wasn't a picture. I don't think it was a picture beforehand. But um, yeah, it, it, was, it was a good example of the veneer of logic. And this, by the way, still fools us even now. So I kind of start one of the chapters with it, because if something looks like it's a logical argument... Uh, if you watch Monty Python, the whole argument of witches and being ducks, um, it's obviously full of this kind of spurious things, but it they still fool people a bit where it goes, that seems legit. And you need to be able to train yourself a bit to go, that's not legit. That's 
you have made an inference that is not supported by the premises, sir or madame. Um, but we can get there and you can get there by having reference points and stories and just having a little bit of, uh, if you know what to look for, you won't be fooled by it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, one thing, one comment I want to make about your book is I really enjoyed the narrative style of it. You are definitely, you wrote it as a story, like telling stories. And I, I think up until this point, the critical thinking books that I have read are presented more in an academic manner. But the, the lighthearted, you know, there's humor injected into it, the narrative style that it's presented in, I definitely found it a more enjoyable read than say a purely academic text. Now, going back through it, I'm, it might be a little bit more difficult to kind of find the same comments because, you know, obviously or, um, uh, particular topics and whatnot, but I just, I, I, I love the stories. I thought it was great. <laughs> I, I think we all love stories. I mean, look, yeah. I'm, I'm an academic. I love academic. I mean, I went to bed the other night with a statistics textbook and uh, my, my poor girlfriend was looking at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, I need to know this. So <laughs> I, I'm happy to, 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 to do stuff. But um, I think if you want to reach people, and this goes back to the philosophy I talked at the beginning, I want to reach people. And I know that I'm a human too. I know if you want to reach me, you tell me a story and it sticks in my, in, in my mind and it makes me think and wonder and, 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 and engage with it. Um, and I, I, I wanted to give people that because you know what, there's a lot of academic textbooks on critical thinking. There's a load of stuff on logical propositions and propositional logic and you can go and they're really matzy and they're fantastic and I have a few of them and I love them but um, and that I, I use them for reference so I, mean, I had to make sure every time I constructed an argument I had to make sure that I was accurately putting it across but maybe just not doing it in such a way that you see some algebraic notation and your mind goes oh no because some people are put off by algebraic notation I understand that um, and I, I know I'm a human I like stories and I like telling them and I like hearing them so I guess because uh, I'm dumb, <laughs> that's the only way I could communicate it, you know. I did at one stage consider I had started writing something that looked a bit like a textbook, but then I was illustrating it with stories and I went, you know what, the stories are far more interesting than the, than just, I mean, there's loads, people have done this as a textbook already or done parts of this. I was bringing a lot of different ideas into it, but I want a manifesto for this that that actually can be read and enjoyed. So I'm glad you did enjoy it because uh, it means I did something right on it, which is good. <laughs> No, yeah, absolutely, bravo with it. It was, uh, it's fantastic. I like I said, I haven't finished it quite yet. I still have about a quarter to get through it, and but everything I've read up to this point has been fantastic. And I spoil the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> I am looking forward to the ending because I haven't quite gotten into the uh, the science portion of the of the book, uh, but I do like how you kind of give a tip of the hat to. Uh, Mr. Carl Sagan, Dr. Carl Sagan, uh, with the candle in the, in the um, candle, I'm sorry, how, what is the title again? It's um, Can, the candle in the dark. The candle demon in the dark. Demon, there, the demon, demon, demon haunted world. world. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, like, I could not remember it. But yeah, that's a, it's a great book, too, for anyone who is interested in more of the critical thinking and scientific mindset. That's actually, that so, would be a great one to get into as well, just because yeah. it's, it's so like it's a it's it's it stands the test of time and i really hope this one does too because that's when i was i remember when i was writing this i was like do i want something that's super hot that sells for like a few weeks and then like or do you want something like sagan's where literally that in 20 years time people can still pick it up and it still has the same lessons uh that are still relevant to today and that's that was so i love that you point out that sagan was 
that was I, I read that when I was young and I thought wow this is I mean I'm still technically young I just don't feel it but um it was it was such a powerful kind of thing oh that's really cool and he was such a beautiful writer like t- one of the things people don't always give Sagan enough credit for is that like his prose was was beautiful and uh I really I really admire that about him like you need to mix art and science that's how you reach more people you just go in there in the technical language you're gonna lose everyone so that's I'm going to run now. I'll stop. No, no. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you hundred um, percent. And the Sagan Sagan, you know, he's obviously one of like the best, arguably one of the best science communicators of all time. And that's because he did have, as you put it, elegant prose and he blended, he, he blended science and art beautifully and was able to reach uh, a wide audience. So I think for, you know, anyone who is in the science and who is passionate about science communication, there's a lesson there that perhaps if we want to reach more people, not only is it that we should be more compassionate about the conversations that we're having, but also that perhaps the, we should be blending more narratives into it and making it more easily digestible and relatable to the average person who isn't, who doesn't have the um, technical training that, uh, that we do making everything accessible because you know what science is for everyone critical thinking is for everyone and we all share this wonderful ineffable world together and we can't we we need to realize that we're a society and our actions affect each other so we need to go out there and and want the best for each other and the best way of making decisions together to, to to really circumvent the challenges we we face as a society as a species so I'm yeah absolutely yeah yeah collectively collectively as a species like we're like a, on a global scale and uh spoken like a yeah. true hippie i know but i, I do, I do believe that. <laughs> yeah no no and uh it actually makes me think about uh, i don't know if it came out yesterday if that was earlier today or past week but uh william shatner went up in the blue origins rocket and when he got back to earth uh he was actually in tears and one of the reasons that people are putting forward for that is uh, the overview effect. Are, so are you familiar with that, the overview effect? Yes. I'm, I'm yeah. assuming you're familiar with that. Yeah. But uh, as much as I think as of space tourism as perhaps maybe a bit of a, um, a bit it's of, a a, and a, yeah, it's a niche and kind of like a waste of resources. But if it was more accessible to people and they were able to experience a little bit of William Shatner did in this overview effect, I think that people would fundamentally change kind of their place in the world and the relationship with the planet, along with how we relate to other people and society as a whole. I think if we, I mean, not that we all have to get into rockets because that's not even getting the, yeah. the carbon footprint <laughs> of that. But um, while, you know, I think it is important to us that we inhabit a wonderful, glorious world that whether we want to or not, we're all in this together. Yeah, and um, I think that's a really important effect to do. There's also potential that sh- that Shatner was just upset that there was no green-skinned women for him to flirt with, um, which <laughs> led to leave through years of doing Star Trek. But you know, I-, I would hope that you're right that it was the overview effect that where you get a sense of proportionality and realize, as Sagan said, I mean, pale blue dot right out there, and and I I, I hope we all keep that in mind that we have this one wonderful world and we have to work damn hard together to make sure that we sustain it for our future generations as well as ourselves. And critical thinking can help to save it and preserve it for future generations. I think without critical <laughs> thinking, we haven't a hope of doing that. Yeah. Critical thinking gives us a shot. Yeah, absolutely. 
anyway, uh, David, it's been an, a fantastic conversation. Uh, just want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on. But uh, before I let you go, I want to know where people can connect with you. Where can they find your book? Are you on social media? Website? Yeah, I, I, I am. Um, they can they can find the book. If, if American audiences, you'll find it called Good Thinking. Uh, and you're all, available in all good bookstores and probably some bad ones too. Uh, if you're <laughs> European or in, or in most the rest of the world, it's called The Irrational Ape. It's all by me, but they're, they're very similar books. So don't, uh, don't fall for that trick and buy two of them, or you can if you want. On social media, you will find me at, my website is uh, davidrobertgrimes.com, but I'm probably most active on Instagram or Twitter. My Instagram is david underscore robert underscore grimes, and my Twitter is at drg1985. So my initials, 1985, the year I was born. Um, very easy to find. So yeah, drop, get in touch, drop a line, um, whatever you like. Uh, hopefully I can reply with something sensible. No guarantees. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Anyway, uh, for those of you who are tuning in to today's episode, thank you so much for stopping by. I really hope you enjoyed it. I know that I uh, enjoyed talking to David and learning about his uh, views of the world and all about how critical thinking can save it. Um, definitely stay tuned for more great content in the future. And please, as always, feel free to reach out with any sort of feedback, questions, comments, things of that nature. And make sure to hit that like button. Uh, so until next time, take care.